How have you been, Thought Evolutionists? It is so great to speak to you again. I'm your host, Stefan Dubier, and you are listening to Thought Evolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. Guys, I am so glad and grateful that you are alive and here with me and my guest right now. I bet your week presented you with some challenges, but hey, no matter how heavy burdens may have felt these past few days, you are here. So whatever it is that you had to wrestle with this week, you made it to this moment right now. Give yourself some credit for prevailing and surviving. And then kick back and relax for this special hour of your week to share with me and my guest. Are you ready for another trip to a new place, a new person, and a new story? We are about to embark on a journey to Newfoundland, Canada's 10th province, to meet Sandra. Just like me, she's originally from Germany, but very much unlike me, with my lack of coordination, balance, and posture. Sandra is a two-time gold medalist and European champion in interpretive dance, and I cannot wait to find out more about that. She loves to hike all of the beautiful trails Newfoundland has to offer, in part because there is a lot of healing when one connects with nature. And healing is something Sandra had to learn after all of the trauma she was forced to experience in her 48 years on Earth. She says about herself that she had to climb out of a bottomless pit and reclaim her life after having survived molestation, sexual harassment and assault, bullying and rape. Any of the awful incidents she experienced could have broken her, but instead she chose to give herself the permission to heal from all of them. There lies a long and painful road behind Sandra, and something that has since become her life motto is, never say I can't do it. After all, she did it. She's here, right now. Thoughtvolutionists, I'm so excited for you to meet Sandra and to hear her story. A story about leaving behind what holds us back from becoming our true authentic self. So, today I would like for you to not only listen to this incredible story, I want you to also look at your own life, to see what you may find that you have yet to overcome or to push through. If instead of telling yourself that you can't do it, you gave yourself permission today to redefine your life and to reclaim it, what could that life look like? Just imagine it. And hey now, don't say you can't do it because we know you can. I'm sure that some things you will hear today are going to be hard to listen to and to process because the topics of abuse, molestation and rape are a really hard pill to swallow. But it is important to hear those things regardless in order for you to understand how Sandra's unique approach to trauma healing guided her out of the unfathomable. Thoughtvolutionists, be inspired and listen attentively as we hear Sandra's compelling story. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about childhood molestation, sexual assault, sexual abuse, bullying, rape, suicide, and mental illness. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Thank you so much for being my guest today. 
Tell me a bit more about those gold medals. I'm glad we're doing this interview remotely so you cannot see how uncoordinated I am. Anyway, how did you become European champion in interpretive dance? And for those of our listeners having question marks in their eyes, like I honestly did when I read that, what is interpretive dance? Well, it is such a pleasure to be here. And yes, of course, I would love to talk about my gold medals. <laughs> well, as a teenager, I start now as a child, I guess I was 12 or 13. I started ballet dancing, classic ballet, but I guess I wasn't agile and bendable enough for that. So I went into a different category, which is an expressive dance. Basically, you tell a story with your dance, kind of like classic ballet without the classic part. And I was with a group of other girls and some boys, and we went to tournaments and we won each and every tournament because we had a very good and very strict teacher who had a vision for us. And so we climbed up to the European Championship. And during my time in ballet, we won it twice. Do you still practice interpretive dance today? And what does that particular athletic domain mean to you? No, I don't practice it today. I used to practice it in Germany. But now that I live in Canada, there's right now with my business and life and family, not much time. I use other forms of exercises. Since I live in Newfoundland, the most beautiful province of Canada, I go hiking, I walk along the ocean, and I found other ways that bring me joy. Let's talk about your childhood in Germany. What was that like? Is that where the dark parts of your story began? You mentioned molestation, bullying, sexual assault, and rape. Well, my family in Germany is very kind and very family oriented and we loved going hiking in austria since it was just five hours with the car away and i love the big family celebrations and everything and my family was very protective of me and my sister but at the same time they were not able to protect me from what happened and that is something that me as a mother i had to learn the hard way so my darkest time started when I was 12 years old. My mother was able to fulfill a childhood dream of mine, that I was able to take care of a pony. Now, we were not rich so that I could have my own horse or riding lessons or anything, but one of her friends had a stable and she needed someone to take care of a pony. And so she offered it to me and I was so excited it was i loved horses i still do to this day and i was so happy being at a stable smelling the hay and watching those beautiful animals and there was the stable master he promised my mom that he would take care of me teach me the ropes and show me how to take care of the pony and make sure that i won't get kicked or bitten by it because it was a pony with a character <laughs> and yeah, so I went there every Thursday. I remember I took the bus there and sometimes my mom picked me up after work or I took the bus home. And I loved it. I spent all summer there and bonded with the pony. His name was Charlie. And But I always loved the big horses, the tall ones. They were mesmerizing. 
And so one day the stable master asked me if I would like to ride on a big horse one day. And I was like, of course. So exciting. He was like, all right, so next week we're going to go for a ride. And so when I came the next week, I was really excited and anticipating riding on a big horse by myself. And what he did was he put me on his horse and he took the reins and walked beside us. And it was a hot summer's day, a light breeze. I remember that. The air smelled dusty because it was like sandy roads along fields. And we were walking for a while, me and the horse, him on foot. And then he stopped in front of the shag. And he said he just had to go inside and get something. And the horse needed a little rest anyways because it was so hot. Well, me not questioning adults and authority, he helped me off the horse. And we went inside that shag. Inside, it looked like a little tool shed with a makeshift bed with a rough blanket on one side and tools and an old office chair on the other. He asked me to sit down on the bed and he was going over and was moving around with the tools for a few minutes. And then he came over and sat down next to me. Next thing I know, he asked me if I had a boyfriend. Well, I was 12 years old. So boyfriend was not something that I was really interested in, but I was like, well, yeah, me and the neighbor's boy, we hang out. And he asked me if he ever kissed me. And I said, yes, on the cheek. And then he wrapped one arm around me and he kissed me on the cheek. And it made me feel uncomfortable. I didn't know what that meant, why he did that. But I was like, all right, whatever. And then he pulled me closer. And his hand moved from my shoulder under my arm and kept went to lay on my developing breasts. And he started stroking them. And that really made me feel uncomfortable. And I didn't understand what he was doing. And I started to become afraid because it didn't feel right. And I didn't know what to do because my parents never told me what to do when someone does something I don't like because I was taught you listen to adults. Adults know best and they always take care of you. And so I was sitting there stiff and afraid. And then his other hand came to lay on my knee and started slowly moving up. And I didn't know what I had. I knew where he was trying to go. I didn't understand why, but I held, I stopped his hand with mine and he pushed against it and I pushed back and he didn't move up any further. He didn't touch me there. But this is an image that's still in my mind. and. I don't know. It's sometimes it's strange to think back and wonder what if, what if he had actually touched me there? What would have transpired? But to make a long story short, I went home and to this day, I do not remember the journey home. I don't remember leaving the shed. The next thing that I remember is being at home and the neighbor, the neighbor's boy was visiting and I told him about what happened and he, said, you have to tell your parents. And I was like, no, I can't. I'm afraid. I can't do this. He was like, you have to tell your parents and I will be with you. So my mother came home and I was terrified. But he stayed while I was talking to my mother. And I remember she only looked at me and she said, don't go there anymore. And that was the end of that conversation. Why do you think your own mother did not instinctively try to help you and instead chose to basically tell you to just hush it all up? Was it part of your family's culture to deal with the situation that way? Or was it perhaps just how things were handled back then at that day and age? Why did she not 
jump up to help you in this highly traumatizing time? Well, I have been thinking about this question for a very long time, and I was very upset with my mother when I was a teenager for not calling the police, for not getting him in jail. But now as a mother myself, I have a better understanding of that. So what happened was my mother entrusted me in the care of the stable master. She felt so guilty for doing that, even though it wasn't her fault. She didn't know because it was nice. But child molesters have to be nice to gain our trust. It's not that she didn't want to help. In her way, she did. She just did what most parents do in a situation. Go straight into her mind, oh my God, what did I do to my child? Rather than focusing on a child in front of her. So after she talked to me and I guess I must have gone to bed, she must have talked to her friend because the next day she went there with me to pick up stuff that I still had at a stable. And the stable master wasn't there. But all the teenager up to 20-something-year-old girls who took care of the other horses, they were there. And they must have heard what happened. And they surrounded me, a scared 12-year-old child, and told me that a stable master would never do something to any one of them because they're outspoken. It must have happened because I was shy and quiet. So in essence, telling me it was my fault that he touched me. This. I carried on for a very long time and it took a while for me to really understand why my mother couldn't help me. And now I understand because she had her own trauma and didn't understand how she could possibly make it better for me as a child because she was not taught by my grandmother, by my grandfather, how to heal that. And this was only the first thing that happened. When I was 14, we went to our regular vacation hotel in Austria. And we were basically family. My grandparents already started a tradition of going there every year. And I looked forward to it every year. Two weeks in the fall, hiking those beautiful mountains. That was my paradise. So the owner of the hotel, he was known to always drink welcome shots with the guests. And so by the time we got there, he was usually already drunk. And he was also known for wanting to grab women's breasts. Just that. Everybody knew that and they just endured it because there was no other ulterior motive behind it. It was a drunk, uh, just a drunk guy who liked to grab women. So one day we went, my, my parents, sister and him went to a location where he wanted to show them new accommodations they were building like higher up on a mountain, like extra hotel rooms and Airbnbs, I guess. And so they went, my parents went with his son in the car to check it out. And he was supposed to watch over us until my parents got back. In that time, he decided that he wanted to fondle my breasts. I was 14. By then, I had a better understanding of what that meant. And I didn't want that. And I said, no. And I walked steps back from him, but he kept on pursuing me. I'm just saying, no, leave me alone. Don't do this. I don't want that. And the thing is, for him, it seemed like a game. So he kept chasing after me. And he then asked my sister, who was 
10 years old if he could fondle her breasts. And my sister didn't was younger, didn't understand what it was. It was like, sure, why not? So like a child, for her, it didn't really mean anything. But for me, it was horrific that he would touch my sister and he tried to touch me and he was still coming after me. Then finally, about it must it felt like an eternity. My parents came back and I ran to my mother and I told her what happened. And my father heard it too, but he was just quiet. And my mother tried to explain to me that he didn't mean any harm and that it was just foolish play. And he she told him in a more joke, jokingly voice, look, you can't do this to my daughter. She doesn't understand it. So she's trying to downplay it. At least that's how it seemed for me. And this was the last time that I confided in my parents about something that happened. So you stopped confiding in your parents. Were there other people, friends, perhaps classmates, anybody else you could confide in? And did you at that point already fully understand the severity of what had happened to you? Well, at the time when it happened, when I was 14, my parents were the only ones I ever talked about, talked to about it. It wasn't until I was 15 or 16 and we had a class in school about what to do and where to go should you have been sexually assaulted. That was the moment when everything came rushing back that happened when I was 12 and when I was 14, because I was suppressing it. And I didn't realize I was suppressing it. It was during that time, during that class, when one of my classmates slipped me a note and said, oh my God, so boring. And I remember I wrote back and I said, yeah, unless it happened to you. And then she looked at me and she was like, this happened to you. And I was like, yep. And she was like, should I go with you somewhere? And meaning to a shelter or to get help. And I was like, nah, it happened so long ago. But then the whole meaning of what had happened came rushing back into my mind. I remembered everything. It was like I was severely triggered. I remembered every touch, every groping when I was 12. And I remembered the chasing and how terrified I felt because my no was not heard and value. And at that moment, yeah, this was the first time I actually shared it with someone else. I didn't share details because I was trying to figure them out in my own mind. But that day, when my mother came home, I asked her, why did we not go to the police? Why did we not go to court? And my mother said, well, I did not want you to have to sit in court and repeat everything this man did to you. I tried to protect you. And that was a very interesting moment because I understood my mother's point of view, but it was my body. And I should have been asked about what I want to do, but my parents decided for me. And that was a very struggling moment in hindsight to reflect back her decisions, her choices, and how they affected me and my ability to make decisions for my own body. How did your story continue from there? Well, my story continued in school where I was severely bullied. It started out, I guess, pretty innocently. I was always the loner. I always, you could always find me during break time with my nose in a book because I don't know, I was not the person for big crowds. Maybe it had to do with my trauma that I was separating myself, but. I never had many friends. I had one 
best friend in school with whom I hung out hang out a lot. And well, as the bullying started, first they were like I was sitting during break time on the floor reading, and they started like slightly kicking my feet. And I told them, stop, leave me alone. And they were like, oh, boo-hoo, stop, leave me alone. You're not the typical kid stuff. Then they started spitting spitballs at me. And then one of my classmates, she literally bullied away my best friend to make me alone, to, so that I would be alone. And I remember that I received a letter from my then best friend telling me, well, you know what? She is right. You're a perfect waste of space. I don't know why I would be friends with you. So that was very hard. And I think the crescendo of all of this was that when I was writing a letter to my pen pal and I told her about my first boyfriend that I had and how excited I was and his name and what had transpired, how we got together, the usual girl stuff. And they stole this letter out of my backpack, made copies and distributed them to the whole school. The thing was, when the bullying started, I confided in my grandmother. And she said, ah, just ignore them. They will stop. That was literally the worst advice I ever got because, of course, they didn't stop. Now, when this thing with the letter happened, the teacher saw me as I was sitting there at my desk crying. And she wanted to know what happened. And I had received a copy from my classmates. They were so kind to give me one so that I knew what was going on. And I just handed her this letter. And my classmates were like, no, 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 don't show her. Don't show her. And I was like, oh, yes, I will. And she read the letter and she looked at me and she said, did you write this? I was like, yes. She was like, you should have told me. I would have never written your personal things. And after that, she went to our main teacher and discussed what was going on. And then they had we had a conference in class. And that's when the bullying finally stopped. Now, the interesting thing was that about six months later, we went to a class trip. You know, in Germany, we usually go for a week to some other place. We went to, I think, Tuscany. And in that time, my classmates got to know the real me outside of school. And all of a sudden, they all loved me. They wanted to be my friends because outside of school, I was completely different than inside of school, which also taught me a lot about how we behave in certain places. So bullying was... It was a hard nut to crack to get over. But the nice thing was that I think three, four years ago, one of my former classmates reached out and he actually apologized for how he and the other kids treated me. And he said he feels so ashamed and he has his own son and he teaches him about kindness and being good, good and standing up to bullies. And that really made everything better. That story makes me want to raise the big question of forgiveness, of course. Owning your mistakes clearly is the first important step to perhaps receiving forgiveness for one's mistakes. Now I know sadly the awful things that happened to you did not stop with the bullying at school, because more dark clouds began to form shortly after. But before we learn how your story continued past that point, I have to raise the question. Do you think you could forgive the aggressors that molested you, sexually assaulted you, and later on the person who raped you as easily as you were able to forgive that former bully? Are there perhaps different layers to forgiveness, or do you view forgiveness as a more general mindset? 
And to make this big, maybe even loaded question even bigger, do you think that within this entire process of dealing with your trauma, you also had to learn to forgive yourself for a lot of things? That is a very interesting question. Forgiveness is a very hasty subject when it comes to trauma. And it's usually misinterpreted. When we think about forgiveness, we think about going to the person and say, I forgive you for what you did. But that's not what this is. What I've learned on my healing journey, forgiveness is not forgiving the people. I never forgave my attacker, but I allowed myself to let them go. What I learned on my journey was that we are holding ourselves hostage by not allowing ourselves to let the story go, by unlinking ourselves from the story. And that's what I did. So I never forgave my attackers, but they have no room in my life. They are like that little speck of dust that floats in the sunlight. Nothing more than that. I have no thought for them. I have no compassion for them. I have no feeling for them. They do not control me anymore. And that's what forgiveness means to me. And it doesn't matter which trauma or what happened. You have to choose that you matter more than what someone else did to you. I know it is a highly unlikely scenario, but what would you do if one of your aggressors stood in front of you right now asking for your forgiveness? I know you are in a much different place of the world and a much different place in your life, but is there perhaps something you would say to them? And how would you react to them pleading for your forgiveness? That is a very tricky question asking someone who is now dealing with trauma healing because I see it from a completely different perspective. So I'm trying to get into the mindset of the trauma survivor rather than the trauma coach and try to answer this question as truthfully as I can. For one, I think it would depend on which level of healing I was in. Being fully healed, my first question would be, okay, give me one reason why I should forgive you. That would be the one question I have. And depending on their answer, I would contemplate and think whether they deserve to be forgiven for the attack on my body, on my soul, on my mind. And then based on their answer, I would make my decision. I think that's a very powerful answer because your answer in itself shows how well you have managed to heal from your trauma and how you have really managed to reclaim not only your life, but the control over how you make decisions, over how you get to say what you will and will not forgive. I think that's an incredible answer, incredibly powerful answer. Now, sadly, the bullying incident was not the last horrible event that took place. Would you mind telling us how that story continued? Well... I was in my 20s and I was going dancing with friends and we still had American soldiers that were stationed in Germany and there was a country club in Darmstadt where we used to love going and I have so many fond memories. I had my dance partner was Billy Joe and it was it was always great. You had to be there before eight o'clock at night to even get a seat because it was packed every Saturday. 
And I came there just a few minutes before eight o'clock. Billy Joe was already there. I remember I threw my jacket over the chair, grabbed Billy Joe, waved to the DJ dog, Mad Dog, and he played my song, which was Faith Hill Wild One. And that's when Billy Joe and I started dancing at night, and we didn't stop until five in the morning. <laughs> Those are really fond memories. But there were also things happening that were everything else but great. One incident was, I think, the worst from all the stories that I could tell. This was the one. I had a boyfriend at this time, Ronnie. He was uh, lieutenant first class stationed there. And he had a friend, Manuel, who was also stationed there. He was, I think, also lieutenant first class. And we used to hang out a lot together. We used to have game nights or watch movies or, I don't know, go to events around town. And we were always hanging out together, me and Ronnie and Manuel. And we were great friends. And it was one night in January where we were at Manuel's apartment and we were having something to drink and having a date, um, not date, a game night. And then Ronnie had to work the next day and get up early. And so he said, okay, he's going to go home. He's going to go to sleep. And I was like, all right, I'm going to stay here. I'm just going to sober up and then I'm going to go home too. The streets were a little icy. So I didn't want to drive home while being intoxicated, even though I didn't have that much to drink, but couldn't really hold much <laughs> at that age. And so Manuel said, well, why don't you sleep over? So you can sober up tomorrow, Sunday, then you can drive home. And I was like, all right. I didn't see any reason not to trust him. I've known, I knew him then for six months. We were always hanging out, the three of us. And I was like, all right, fine, no problem. So he had this huge oversized king size bed. I think five people could have been easily fitting into this bed. It was crazily big. So I was in my sweatpants and baggy t-shirt on one side of the bed and he was on the other one. And I wanted to go to sleep. Then all of a sudden, he was next to me and started touching me, groping me. And I said, stop. I don't want this. How dare you? What are you doing? And I pushed him away and he wouldn't let up. And I kept pushing his hand away and saying, no, leave me alone. I want to go to sleep. I don't want this. I'm dating your best friend. And he just kept on doing that and until I went out of bed and I said, stop this. And he was like, fine. Okay whatever when you turn around but I was so ramped up I was afraid and I was worried that if I would go to sleep that he would just start everything all over again and so I said well do you still want me or can I go to sleep now and he must have taken that as an invitation because before I knew it my pants were down and he was entering me and I was terrified I I didn't know what just happened. It's happened so quickly. And I remember I pulled my legs up and pushed against the stomach and pushed my hands. And he literally flew across the room. And that's when he snapped out of it and realized that I really did not want that. So that night I was raped. And it was very hard the first few weeks to get over this Feeling. I remember whenever the memory came up, I squeezed my legs together because I still could still feel it, everything. And for someone who has never been raped, it's so hard to explain what you're actually 
feeling in the hours, days, and weeks after it happened. So I remember I got out of bed, yelled at him for raping me, and I went out on the couch because I didn't know what to do. I was I was traumatized. I was in shock. So I got dressed and I slept on the couch and he did not come any closer again. In the morning, as soon as I woke up, I left and I went to my boyfriend's place and he was still home. And I told him what happened. And I was like, what are you going to do? Your friend raped me. What are we supposed to do? I, I was, I needed help. I needed someone to hold me. And he told me, well, he's my best friend, not going to do anything. <laughs> I could not believe what I heard. But of course, needless to say, it was the last time he saw me. And I just felt so alone in this moment. Like this was not important. When I came home that morning, my dad was already up. And he saw in my face what had happened. And he said he tried, didn't he? And I say, no, he actually did it. And he just nodded. And I went to bed and slept. Then when I woke up, my dad told me that Manuel had called several times. And he was always telling him that I wasn't home. And to just next time when he called, I should answer just so he would stop calling. So thinking back to that. It made me very upset because my father did not protect me. He didn't yell at him for how dare you. He did not tell him he would call the police. If he ever called again, he did nothing. He made me talk to my rapist. And for the longest time, I could not understand why. Throughout all of this intense trauma that you had to somehow live through, was there anybody who was there to help you? Any friends? Anyone you could reach out to? Anyone who would, you know, willingly take your hand, listen to listen to what you had experienced. What was that process like? It feels, hearing your story feels very isolated. It feels very helpless and very lonely. Were there no people who would just be there for you, be, be your ally, be your friend, be somebody to support you when you're going through something highly, highly traumatic? Well, the sad thing is, no. I remember... After the rape happened and I had to talk to Manuel on the phone, he, of course, was just calling to make sure I would not say to anyone that he raped me, that this was ridiculous, that he didn't. And I shouldn't go around and saying, oh, he raped me and yada, yada, yada. Of course, I just said, no, I'm not going to do that and hung up the phone. And he never called again. He just wanted to make sure that he was not going into trouble. I went to talked to my friends, the ones that I always went with to the country club a few days later, because I wanted to go to the military police and tell them what happened. But of course, I was unsure if I should do that. So I went to talk to my friends and they both worked at a travel agency there. So they were always working with the soldiers and knew how to handle things and stuff with them. And they said, you know, no one is going to believe you if he said he raped you. You know what you should do instead? You should say that he is married and that he had you as a girlfriend because they take family in very high regard. So not only did they play down what I've been through, but they told me to flat out lie to the military police, which is what I did not do. 
because it didn't sit right. But I also felt very discouraged about telling, going there and telling my story. And so I remember I went home and I talked to my dad about it. And he looked at me and he said, you know, if you go to the police, it's going to be you against the entire U.S. Army. Who do you think is going to win? And that really hurt that he was not on my side, that he also discouraged me from speaking out about what happened to me. Sadly, from what you've told me, that's still not the end of what happened to you. Now, where do we go from there? So after I was raped, I secluded myself. I became an hermit. I stayed home, didn't go out with my friends. It must have been a couple of years. In this time, I gained weight because I wanted to be invisible. I wanted to be as ugly as possible so people, so men would never, ever touch me again. And so I remember it was like two years later and... I, every once in a while, I went out with my friends, but I always was on guard. I was afraid. I may have had a couple, you know, flimsy relationships that never went anywhere. I just was too traumatized, what I didn't realize back then. So it was a couple of years later. My friends invited me to go to a Cuban club with them, where we had a Cuban night and dancing. And I was like, you know what? I like Cuban music. It's fun. Why not? So I dressed up, went out with my friends, and I was asked to dance by a Cuban man, young, in his early 20s. And I had no idea how to dance to Cuban music, but I was like, all right, can't be this hard. So we went on a dance floor. He pushed me so close to him, I could feel his growing erection as he rubbed against me while we we're on the dance floor. I tried to push him away and get out of his grip, and he would not let go. Basically, I was sexually assaulted on a dance floor. And after he finally let go of me, because I wasn't strong enough to get rid of him, I went to my friends and said, did you see what he did? Was he what they were like, yeah, why didn't you just push him away? So they had no intention of stepping in and helping me. And I remember that when we left, I tried to avoid him as good as I could. I didn't want to see him anything. I just wanted to go. And as we were leaving, he came and said, why are you leaving? Like as if nothing had happened. And I just turned around and left. And I remember thinking, that's it. That was the last straw. I'm never going out again. I'm sick and tired of men and what they're doing. And yeah, I just didn't know how to handle or even process what had happened yet again. When I wasn't even dressed in any way that would suggest that I would want that. So I think aside from the rape, this was the hardest thing for me to work through. Why do you think we as a society downplay these events? It seems to me like there's a big underlying issue when friends can almost watch you, or not just almost, they watch you get assaulted and they just say, well, why didn't you just push back? Or why didn't you just wear a longer dress? Always shifting the responsibility to the person who had the traumatic experience and shifting away from the aggressor. Why do you think we as a society still do that to this day, to where we almost shame victims of sexual assault? Why do we keep doing that? And what can we as people do to change the narrative? I think part of the issue is that sexual assault has been so normalized 
now with the internet and the Me Too movement and people are more open to speaking out about it, it's changing because there's more awareness to the damage it actually does. But before, think about it, most people in my age range, they were still raised with, you don't talk about what happened. What would the neighbors think? I remember when I told my mother that I would go to an event and actually talk about my trauma and that the media would be there. And she was like, and how does your husband, what does your husband think about that? What would your husband say if your neighbor read in a newspaper and asked him about this? And I didn't even understand my mother's question because I was like, he's proud of me. He's proud of me for standing up, sharing my story, helping others. So this shows the conditioning that our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents have been going through. It was simply accepted sexual assault. It's something that to really explain to that, we would have to go all the way back to Neanderthal, to the primal instinct and how the building of society changed the primal instinct into something sinister, dangerous and shameful. But I think <laughs> it's too big of a subject for here. So it was just conditioning over thousands of years where women were just went from the partner to the prize. And yeah, it developed over so many thousands of years into this. And now that we're more aware of that, we're starting to transition out of it. But it was simply conditioned belief, conditioned behavior. After you had experienced all of this, you were no longer a child, you were a young woman. Did you seek any help, any therapy, any trauma processing? What did you do to try and get some help? Well, it must have been about a year or two after I was sexually assaulted that I realized how much I had changed and how much I didn't like the person I had become. I was depressed. I was anxious. I wasn't happy. And that's when I tried starting to process what happened, but it was overwhelming. So I went to my family doctor and gave him the gist of what happened to me during my life. And he was very kind. And he said, you know what? I would like for you to talk to someone. I was like, okay, whatever it takes. And he referred me to a psychologist. I had one session with him, talked to him about everything that happened. And at the end of this initial session, he leaned back in his chair. He looked at me and he said, I think you worked already through it all. What am I supposed to do? So that was the moment when I literally hit rock bottom because not only did my parents not help me, my friends deserted me. My ex-boyfriend chose his best friend over me. Now even the doctors deserted me. And that was, I think, one of the most difficult moments to realize that I was really completely alone in this. There was no help. I had to either fight for myself or, well, what's the alternative? We will circle back in a minute to talk about how you then actually found healing. I'm wondering, so does your 48-year-old self still feel connected to your past in Germany to this day? 
to Germany itself and to the German culture. I know you no longer live in Germany and made Newfoundland your new home. Was that perhaps an intentional disconnect? Well, this is a question that has several answers. For one, yes, I still do feel connected to the German culture, but more to the Germany that I grew up in. Every time I go back and I visit Germany, it looks less like the Germany that I left. I think this happens with every country. I mean, migrations and new companies, new businesses, new developments. So it's not the Germany that I left. And so in a way, I mourn the Germany that I left. But I still like to go back and I hope that now that all this craziness in the world is done, <laughs> that I can go back home for a visit soon. But my story was not the reason why I left. It was fate that brought me to Canada because my husband, he's Canadian. And I met him online by chance, not by choice. And we just knew that we were meant to be together. And so that's why I left Germany for Canada, first Ontario, and now Newfoundland. After what you had to experience, was it difficult to allow yourself, to give yourself permission to be in a relationship with somebody and then to even marry that person? How did you get there? Well, after all of this happened, I did have several not very long-lasting relationships. And it was the last boyfriend I had before I met my husband who actually gave me some very important insight that helped me tremendously on my healing journey. He had told me that when we broke up, he told me that he had just been married to a woman with mental issues and he did not want to be with another one. He did not say that mean. He just stated a fact. And looking back, I'm so grateful for that because for the first time, I actually took a good look at myself. I actually thought back to all the relationships I had and how I was behaving in that relationship. And it was basically, it's like you're stepping out of your body and you're observing yourself. And I saw a pattern, a pattern that I was doing. And that was, yeah, the beginning of my healing journey. Because the more I observed myself the way, how I felt in certain situations and start to question why, the more awareness came to the trauma and my reaction to it. And so as I was reflecting on all my relationships, I thought that I'm not going to have another relationship until I am the woman I would like to be in a relationship. Well, I must have done something right because three months later, I met my husband. <laughs> so, but with my husband, it was different. We met online and we were friends first, long before we met each other in person. So we already had a baseline of communication and knowing each other. And I noticed that in all of my relationships, I always try to bend myself like a pretzel trying to be what I thought they wanted me to be. But with my husband, from the beginning, I felt safe to be exactly who I was. And this is the difference between trying to find love on the right one and actually having found the right one. I explain that to my clients that the relationship is 
the energy. When the energy clashes, then we feel like we have to be someone we're not in order to make ourselves the right person for them. Whereas if the person, if the energy matches ours and is in going moving in unison, we can be ourselves because the other person is exactly matching our energy. So that's an easy way to see if you found the right one or the wrong one. As long as you bend yourself like a pretzel, not the right one. And that was a very interesting observation. And still to this day, we are in unison after 18 years. So whether he came into my life by accident, by chance, or he was like to make up for everything that happened in my life, who knows? But he was the right one. And so there was never any question. He, even though he didn't know my story, by being who he was and how he treated me, he actually could help me heal. How has your life changed? Obviously, there's that husband by your side, which is, by the way, a wonderful story how you guys met and how you first understood that you have to accept and love yourself before you could even allow yourself to be in such a good and healthy relationship. You are obviously a very different person now than you were back then when all of this took place. What did it take for you to climb, as you had said, out of that bottomless pit and to fully reclaim your life? Well, the interesting thing is that as I was moving through healing my trauma, I didn't know that I was actually doing that. I just wanted to feel better. I wanted to be happy again. That's really what drove me. I didn't know what I was doing was healing. But as my last boyfriend pointed out and I started to observe myself, it was something that worked for me. And I just, I don't know, I just a few days ago, I talked to someone and she said she was always told not to have conversations with herself. But that was the only way she could go and move through her trauma in her mind. But she was told not to. And so she was confused. And I thought about that. And that's exactly what I did. I was constantly having conversations with myself in my head, trying to understand why I felt the way I felt, what was so different today. I tried to understand how trauma was having such a hold on me. You know, you go through those different phases. First, you believe it has to be your fault because nothing else makes sense. Then you're in a stage where you realize it was not your fault and you're getting angry and you want vengeance, nothing more than anything else. Just vengeance so you would feel better. And then as you move through that, you realize that vengeance is also not the answer because you can't just go around killing people, you know, or cutting their little, their best parts off or things like that. I mean, I had very vivid imaginations what I would like to do to all those guys, but I didn't act on any of those. But I realized that vengeance is not helping me. And then I came across a saying that was being angry is like at someone else is like drinking poison and hoping the other person to die which really made me think a lot. And I started to realize that the only person who can fix this is me. And upon spinning and thinking and mulling all those stories over in my life, and I went back into all of them and relived them in my mind on purpose because I wanted to figure out how I can stop this, how I can feel better. 
And I realized I was holding myself hostage. I was the one who was not allowing myself to let go of the story. And that was probably the biggest aha moment I ever had. And that's when everything started to unfold. And I started to release without realizing that I was releasing. I just started to feel better. I started to feel happier. I started to feel yeah, more confident. I was more outgoing, more outspoken. It's didn't happen all at once. It were little things that happened, but it all came back to me having deep conversations with myself, as weird as that sounds. No one else was there. No one else would even be able to understand what I was trying to accomplish. So I didn't even reach out for help because it was pretty obvious no one was there to help me. So I had to help myself. And within that, I found myself. And I healed myself step by step. It took 20 years, but I did that. And looking back, I can honestly say, in a way, I'm almost grateful for everything that happened because I would not do what I do today if it weren't for my story and how I managed to heal. Where did you find the strength to do all of that? Many people would have remained broken. Sadly, sexual assault and rape often lead to self-loathing, mental illness, very often even to suicide. As a matter of fact, according to the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs, about 33% of rape survivors said that they had contemplated suicide at one point or another. How did you manage to not become a part of that grim statistic? To be fully honest, I don't know. I guess I was not focusing on giving up. Giving up was not something I was taught. I was taught there is always an answer. You just got to find it. And then as I was on my healing journey, and I mean, healing is always two steps forward, one step back. I call it the healing dance because you're always moving. You know, there's triggers coming up and then the emotional hangover. And then you go back and forth and you always you gradually progress. And whenever I was in a slump, I always told myself, you did not come this far only to come this far. You made it this far. You can make it further. And so I continued to push through. And at some point in your healing journey, you're up on a mountaintop. You've made it where you left all the very difficult things behind. And then you deal with the rest. Like the limiting beliefs, the self-sabotage, the not feeling good enough, the feeling unlovable, all those emotions I had to deal with too. And throughout my healing journey, I under I learned step by step what the importance was of healing that and how. To give you an example, about 10 years ago, long before I had my business, I was looking at the mirror, frustrated because I was severely overweight and I didn't like what I saw. I wanted to be thin, but whenever I went to the gym and I lost some weight, it all came back, that and more. But the yo-yo effect didn't make any sense to me. It didn't feel right. And so I was looking at myself and I tried to picture myself being thin like I used to be when I was in my 20s. And I realized I was terrified of being thin. Because I was terrified that once I'm thin and beautiful again, that everything would just happen all over again. 
And that was a huge realization because I realized in order to lose weight, at first I have to heal what really the issue is. And this is something that most people who struggle with their weight don't realize. It's not about the weight. It's about why you use your weight as a protection. That was a very deep insight that I had. And that really helped me to focus even more on healing, that I wasn't afraid to show who I really was. Because in a way, the weight was a mask. I was hiding. I was making myself ugly. But then again, my husband, he always said, don't lose weight for me. I love you no matter if you're thin or not. Do it for yourself. Don't do it for me. And this encouraged me too that it is not my body that's important. It's the whole package, right? So yeah, I guess healing comes with a lot of twists and turns and forward motion, backward motion. And my internal dialogue really is what was driving me and pushing me forward. There was always this one part of me that was not traumatized. I said, come on, we can do this. Let's go. Let's go a little further. We have a purpose, but we will not find it until we're actually healed. And the other part was a traumatized part. It was like, nah, I don't know. This is so intimidating. I don't like this. And yeah, sounds strange, but this is what helped me through. If there is somebody who's listening right now and who is perhaps still in the midst of an abusive relationship or at the very beginning of a similar trauma process like the one you went through, what would be your advice to them? First of all, no one deserves to be abused. No one. I work with several women who are still or have been in abusive relationships. And it is so, yeah, almost is, I can't say sad or horrific, or it hurts my heart to see how severely they've been abused and how much they told themselves that it just, that's just how it is. And I'm going to endure it. So I admire people who are in an abusive relationship and take it and still see the good in people. They see that little glimpse of something good and they hang on to that for dear life and hope that they can change their partner. And helping them through the realization that they're never going to change. This is difficult. But then again, helping them through and seeing how they're transforming their lives, how they're getting their self-love, their courage, their power, the sense of control back and take back control of their lives. That's so beautiful to watch. Now with being at the beginning of the healing journey, the first thing I always say is trauma is not a life sentence. Everything you need to heal is within you. You just have to dig deep and let it out. And I guess for me, that is my inner voice. And But trauma healing is different for everyone. So I can't tell someone how they should heal because to them it may not resonate. But then I would try and find what resonates for them and help them take the first steps. Most of the time I guide them the first steps until they can do the rest of the journey by themselves. Now you have decided to dedicate your life to helping others as they try to recover from the trauma they experienced. And you do so as an intuitive trauma healer. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, to be completely honest, if you had told me 10 years ago, I would be doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> I would have laughed. I would be like, no way. 
the thing is, with my healing journey, my journey led me to this. I had, I started out with offering Reiki and creating healing jewelry. I always knew I wanted to help people. I didn't know what that would be. So trauma healing was the farthest from my mind. But I love doing Reiki and energy work. I love spirituality, still do. It's part of my work. And what I loved most was after the Reiki sessions, I always sat down with my clients to make sure they were grounded and didn't feel woozy or anything. And they always opened up to me and they always talked about trauma, all of them without fail. And every time I knew exactly what to tell them so that they could have an aha moment and release that shift, heal. At first, I didn't realize what I was doing. but the more this happened, the more I started to think. And I was like, okay, I really like this. And I realized what I was doing was intuitive coaching. So I decided, okay, let's make it official. I became a certified coach. And as I was in coaching school, well, online, I stumbled upon TIR, which is traumatic incident reduction, which is a modality no one has ever heard of. But it's incredible because it helps you to release trauma triggers and PTSD in a matter of weeks. It's truly fascinating how fast you can actually release something more than medicine says is not possible because they classify PTSD as a disorder you have to live with for the rest of your life with medication. And that's that. Yeah, not true. PTSD is nothing than a very intense trigger and triggers can be released. And I have released Help my clients release PTSD time and time again with this modality. But throughout the process, when I realized that trauma healing is what I wanted to do, and it was not like I chose this, trauma healing chose me. I realized it's my purpose because honestly, I could not do anything else. There's nothing that I would rather do than help people through their trauma. Now, this sounds very paradox thinking about how intense trauma is, but Throughout my healing journey, I learned so much about trauma. Trauma just makes sense to me. I can talk to you for a few minutes and I can tell you exactly why you have your triggers. That's how much sense this whole process makes to me. And having fully healed from my trauma, I don't get triggered by the stories that I hear. And I hear horrendous stories. It, it breaks my heart what I hear, but I don't focus on the story. I focus on they can get to where I am. They can be healed. They can live a life free of trauma. They can become their true authentic self by releasing everything that's holding them back from being who they are. And that's what I've built. I don't just focus on trauma. I've created an approach that I call full circle trauma healing. <laughs> I had to think for a moment, which means I don't only focus on your trauma. I focus on your trauma. I focus on limiting belief, on self-sabotaging behavior, on conditioned behavior, a focus on generational trauma. So trauma that your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents carried down and raised you with their trauma. I look into the ancestral line of trauma. There are so many things that we carry on from our ancestors and generations past that we don't even know about. And it's not ours to have, but it's being passed down. And all of this Releasing all of that has such an immense effect on you. You will become a person you didn't know existed. You will be so confident. Your confidence is coming from the inside. 
I remember one time I was, when I was at a hair salon, it was the first day here in Newfoundland, I was looking for a new hairdresser. And there were like three of the hairstylists, they saw me walking down the aisle and they said, look at this confidence, you can see her energy. I didn't realize that, but they saw that. And this is confidence that comes from being fully healed and knowing exactly who you are. That's what trauma healing does. That's what it turns into. It's not just you heal your trauma and then you have to figure out how to live the rest of your life. No, you heal from your trauma, you heal from your limiting beliefs, you release all the ancestral generational issues that are there, and you decide how your life is going to go from here on out. And that is what I help my clients with. If any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you and learn more about you as well as your work, what can they do? First, you could visit my website, riseaboveyourstory.com. You can also check out my book, Journey to Yourself, How to Heal from Trauma, written by someone who did. If you're more the visual person, check out my YouTube channel, Sandra Coos Unfiltered, or look me up on Facebook under Rise Above Your Story. Sandra, as we say in German, Dankeschön. It was a truly inspiring conversation, and I'm so grateful we got to speak today. If our listeners have questions that may warrant a follow-up episode, would you come back and continue the conversation with me? It has been a pleasure speaking with you, Stefan. Vielen Dank. And yes, of course, I would love to come back if there are any more questions. What a beautiful message Sandra delivered with her story today. True healing starts within. That is not to say that therapy, counseling, coaching, and if needed, medical intervention cannot be helpful and often necessary tools, of course. But we really should focus more on what's going on within us. We need to try and sharpen our intuition, listen to ourselves. What wounds might you have left to lick? What trauma are you perhaps keeping bottled up, thoughtvolutionists? I hope you feel inspired by Sandra's words. Perhaps it's time for you to climb out of your own bottomless pit to reclaim your life. Because that's what it is. It's your life. And you really should be the one in control of it. As always, our episode notes contain more information about how you can get in touch with our guest. Check out Sandra's website, riseaboveyourstory.com. That is riseaboveyourstory.com. If you have questions for Sandra or would like to become a guest yourself, there are many ways for you to get in touch. First and foremost, there is our website, thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That's also where you can find our intake form and where I went to the merch store to buy my lovely Your Story is Your Identity hoodie. Check it out if you want to. You may also call our virtual voicemail number to leave your questions for Sandra or for me. That number is 864-501-5033. That is 864-501-5033. You can also get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube. Just look for Thoughtvolution to find us. The same applies for those of you wanting to listen via Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or whatever other podcast app you might be using. Type in Thoughtvolution, and as always, please rate, review, comment, subscribe, and do whatever you can to help boost Thoughtvolution's exposure. Perhaps even recommend this podcast to a friend. We're all building a community. We're all about listening to each other, 
learning together and evolving a little more every single week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. New stories air every Tuesday, and you can find every episode we have already released by going to our website, (laughs) thoughtvolutionpodcast.com, to our YouTube channel, or to the podcast app of your choice. I would like to close by saying that I am grateful for you. It is easy to listen to things that just make your mind drift off. And it can be fun to just enjoy something without investing too much thought. This podcast is a little different, and not everything is easy to hear and absorb. But it is real, and I'm so happy that you chose to really listen today to real people telling real stories. Sandra's story matters, and so does yours. So thank you. You are the reason I'm doing all of this. And I appreciate you very, very, very much. And this week, as always, be kind to each other. I will see you next Tuesday. And I love you, Lotsies. (laughs) Take care.